when John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, was old, he was driven by the Holy Spirit to write a good news, a gospel of Jesus' life. Having told the story maybe a thousand times, and having thought it through to a great degree, he recognized two defining moments in Jesus' ministry. The greatest was, of course, his resurrection from the dead. No one else had ever risen from the dead to life evermore. But there was another moment that split Jesus' ministry into two. So much changes from this moment. We'll talk a lot about that. But we'll also find in this text a summary of all that John has recorded so far in his gospel. The contrast of faith and unbelief, those who are the flock of Christ and those who are not, light and dark. We'll hear about the witnesses to who Christ is. John the Baptist, his works, the scriptures, and primarily the Father. This is all so important that we better take some time and we'll walk through the conversation, this event that constitutes the pivotal moment in the midst of Jesus' ministry. It bears the marks of events that happened hundreds of years before and causes changes that will echo for, well, at least a few millennia. (laughs) And it all starts with a detail that at first seems kind of unimportant. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Okay, John, why do we need to know about that feast? What's the big deal? It all focuses down on one person who was extremely critical to Jewish culture. I wish I could tell you that this was a wonderful person in Middle Eastern history, but no. In fact, much the opposite. Antiochus Epiphanes was a nasty piece of work. Who? Really? Every Jewish person knew the name Antiochus Epiphanes and burned with anger at the mention of his name. We often speak about the prophecies of Daniel that were so amazing. In fact, for centuries, some people denied that they were written ahead of time. Nobody could know all that about what was going to happen. But now that actual copies have been found that predate some of the prophecies, those who deny the divine origin of Scripture are scrambling for answers. Some have actually taken to calling it, and I kid you not, they actually call it amazingly lucky guessing. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's fine. Anyway, Daniel's amazingly accurate description of the conquest of Alexander the Great are followed up with the prediction that Greece would be broken up into four separate powers that would eventually be overthrown by another greater power. Now that it's happened, we know that that iron-fisted empire, which didn't even exist when Daniel wrote, was Rome. But just as Rome was beginning to sweep through the world, one of the four Greek powers figures into our story with the Feast of Dedication. The Seleucid Empire was still pretty powerful 200 years before Christ when the armies of Rome kidnapped their ruler and held him hostage in their capital. Our evil guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, simply named himself co-regent of the Seleucid Empire with the two-year-old who was the legal heir to the throne. (laughs) And the two-year-old's name, Antiochus III. 
And very important to our story, the second part of the name of this, this evil general chose for himself, Epiphanes, God manifest. <laughs> Which, of course, means something like God in human form. Antiochus IV, after just a few years, murdered the child who was supposed to become ruler in order to ensure he and he alone reigned. Huh. Other people, instead of referring to him as Epiphanes, took to calling him Epimenes, the insane one, the crazy guy, okay? Whatever else is true about Antiochus, we know that he had an enormous ego. Why else would you call yourself God manifest? But he appears to have been a very capable general and he extended his kingdom all the way south past Israel to Egypt. Here's a quote from that era that helps us to understand some of what's going on. In 168 BC, Antiochus led a second attack on Egypt and also sent a fleet to capture Cyprus. Before reaching Alexandria in Egypt, his path was blocked by a single old Roman ambassador named Gaius Papilius Lienus, who delivered a message from the Roman Senate directing Antiochus to withdraw his armies from Egypt and Cyprus or consider themselves in a state of war with the Roman Republic. Antiochus said that he would discuss it with his council, whereupon the Roman envoy drew a line in the sand around him and said, before you cross this circle, I want you to give me a reply for the Roman Senate, implying that Rome would declare war if the king stepped outside of the circle without committing to leave Egypt immediately. Weighing his options, Antiochus decided to withdraw. <laughs> Only then did Pompilius agree to shake hands with him. Antiochus wisely understood he really had no choice and agreed to abandon his conquest in that direction. You can imagine the blow to such an inflated ego. Now we have to couple that event with another interesting historical fact. A certain Jewish family had earlier made a political alliance with Antiochus and giving him a large sum of money, had their man installed as high priest by force. Antiochus wanted to Hellenize Israel, get rid of all their Jewishness, their lifestyle and religion, and make them like Greeks. And this new high priest was supposed to start that process. You can imagine the animosity between those in Jerusalem who believed in remaining different from the rest of the world, like the scripture says, and those who wanted to be like everybody else. So when a rumor reached Jerusalem that Antiochus had been killed in Egypt, the high priest who had been deposed by Antiochus gathered an army about him and ousted the high priest and all those who had sold out to Epiphanes. So you've got a thoroughly disgraced Antiochus Epiphanes making his way home with his tail between his legs, and lo and behold, as he passes Israel, he finds out his choice for high priest has been drummed out of office. In his egocentric wrath, he decides to do these Jews in for good. And he understood that which defined a Jew. Circumcision, sacred food, sacred times, sacred places, all contained in their sacred text. The Torah, or law, we call it the Old Testament. So he attacks just these things. Let me read a few Jewish records. 
In 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes dared to occupy Jerusalem, enter the Holy of Holies, desecrate the sanctuary by offering unclean animals upon the altar of burnt offerings, pollute the whole building by sprinkling it with water in which flesh had been boiled, dedicated the temple itself to Jupiter Olympius, and erected a statue of that deity and plundered the temple treasuries. Another says, Sabbaths and festivals were not to be observed, circumcision was not to be performed, the sacred books were to be surrendered, and the Jews were compelled to offer sacrifices to the idols that had been erected. I mean, this sounds bad, but really not that terrible. Folks, they're being very, very uh, discreet. Antiochus ordered the collection by force of every copy of the scriptures that could be found so that they could be burned. He murdered priests who taught the law and killed anyone with a copy of the law. He set up festivals at the same time as those given in Scripture and killed anyone celebrating the biblical festivals rather than his. He disallowed worship on the Sabbath and forced them to work on that day. He had pork brought into the temple and men were told to eat it. If they did not, he had it forcibly shoved down their throats and then had them killed. We have a record of two women who were caught after having their baby boys circumcised secretly. He paraded them in disgrace, we're using PG language here, with their babies all over Jerusalem and then brought them to the top of the wall at the temple as a, and as a warning to all who would dare consider circumcision through women and babies 200 feet to the pavement below. Nice guy. <laughs> One historian of the time records that 40,000 Jews were killed and the same hauled off as slaves in just the first three days of the campaign. In all, perhaps 200,000 Israelis were killed. This, of course, could not go on and the Maccabean revolt was soon underway that after seven years of battles brought Israel its freedom. Well, that coupled with the wars against all the other borders of the Seleucids Antiochus, in his mad campaign to grasp control of all he could, definitely had overextended his armies. It was not long after this that Antiochus was, in his turn, murdered, <laughs> and that trouble time was over. What does all this have to do with Jesus teaching in Jerusalem at the Feast of Dedication? Over 40,000 people were killed, the same hauled off as slaves, the temple is desecrated, the treasury is raided, but the Maccabean revolt is successful. The temple is cleaned up, rebuilt, and rededicated to the worship of Yahweh, creator of all things, and God of the Hebrews. And they celebrated their recovery from the wicked work of God manifest with a feast of dedication. In fact, to this day, Jews celebrate the feast of dedication. You've all heard of it, every one of you. But nowadays, they usually call it by the Hebrew name, Hanukkah. So now you know. All right, now that we have all the history, let's go back to the story and try to understand it from the mindset of a first century ruler of the Jews. Okay? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand, or out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. When we hear I and the Father are one, we hear the glorious truth of God the Son in human form. They heard, I am God manifest. Epiphanies. Wow. We used to have a lady who would come to special events in this church. Her name was Lula. Lula remembered sitting on her grandfather's lap while he told her about his life as a boy who was a slave. Slavery seems such a long time ago, you know, to us. It really wasn't. And the Seleucid occupation, with all its horrors, was that close in history to the time of Christ. We're going to read the reaction of the Jews in a few moments, but I'd like to draw your attention to a few things. I and the Father are one. Jesus used the name Father nine times in this short discourse. Okay. Sons must, of course, be of the same nature as their father. But pounded into every Jewish mind and heart was this truth. God is one. So if there is one God, how can there be a father and a son? As time went on, Jesus' disciples began to realize that God is one as to nature, but three as to persons. We call this the Trinity. Did you know there's no example of the Trinity that does it justice? There's just none. It's like an egg, shell, yolk, and white, but it's all one. <laughs> yeah, no, not really. Water can be liquid, solid, or gas. Yeah, but that's not really it either. The space-time-matter continuum. Past, present, future. You know, again, all of these things might help us to grasp some small truth about the nature and persons of God, but if they're followed too far, they almost certainly will lead us down the wrong path. The three persons share one nature, and they are close beyond anything any human being will ever experience which may explain why Jesus spoke of his father nine times in this little space. The early theologians all spoke Greek, but they could find no word sufficient to express this closeness. So they invented one, perichoresis. <laughs> Knowing how difficult all this is to understand, even with some time, try to put yourself into the shoes of Jews who had seen a false God manifest and his evil works as Jesus tries to explain to them that he is the real God manifest, that he is Emmanuel. John wrote that they gathered around him. Surrounded is a fair translation. Okay. They weren't there to find out if Jesus was the real deal. That's why he said, I told you and you don't believe. They thought they already knew the answer. This guy says he's God manifest. And they were trying to entrap him. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Well, at least they understood Jesus. <laughs> he said, the Father and I are one. And they knew what he meant. Or did they? These men were constantly saying things like, what sign do you do? 
But the last time he was in Jerusalem, he had, in a very public miracle, healed a man born blind. There was a huge to-do about this, and some of these very men had grilled the blind man about his healing in the temple. They had seen his good works, but they couldn't see past Antiochus Epiphanes. Later, this same group would be incensed when Jesus let the children sing praises to him, Hosanna, son of David. Why couldn't they understand the import of the signs Jesus did? Well, they were too focused on themselves and on what they wanted. And what they wanted was to keep their power. Still, it is true that people often look at the circumstances rather than the big picture that God has for them. Even when little bits and pieces of the pictures all around them should make them focus on him. You know, like maybe the signs Jesus did. (laughs) Was he a fake? Like that evil Greek ruler? Or is he the real deal? They seem to contend that there was no such thing as a real God manifest. But there can't be a fake unless there is a real Although some people act like everyone and everything is a fake. But we know in our heart of hearts, every time you see a fake, there must be a real out there somewhere. I wish I could tell you that the Maccabees, as they fought to regain the use of the temple in its service of the true God, were actually believing that that was the reason. (laughs) But the truth is that they used sincere believers to gain political power. And the Feast of Dedication, it was more about political celebration than recognizing God's work. You know, like they had freed themselves more Fourth of July than in God we trust. Good thing we never see people using faith to get political power or wealth nowadays, right? (laughs) Well, these rulers of the Jews, they were well acquainted with the wealth of prophecies concerning the day. The day when God's chosen one would come and change the world. Everything was changing, but they preferred to hold on to the past, the comfortable, wonderful past. Why do you always want to change everything? Well, because this life stinks. I mean, not completely. There's still plenty of good life left over even today. But this life will always wind down to terrible. That's why God is making everything new. That's why we must move from the old to the new. Well, they were blinded to reality, so Jesus stabs at them a little. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? I am the Son of God. Silly people sometimes say things like, Jesus was a great teacher. He was so warm and wonderful. Ah, he was a lunatic or a liar or the Lord, the Son of God, just like he claimed to be. All right, then there's this whole he called them God's things. I'll grant you this is a weird one, but they understood because they were in the middle of it all. The Hebrew word Elohim means one with power. Yahweh is the all-powerful one, so usually this word is used to mean the Lord God. But it can also mean a powerful ruler. And as I said, Jesus Jesus is stabbing at them a bit here. 
The psalm he is quoting is about Jewish rulers who had become corrupt. Listen, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Wow, no wonder these guys got hot. Jesus is saying they have no knowledge or understanding and they walk about in darkness. Remember the last confrontation was with the blind man? (laughs) And Jesus is saying they will be judged for their wicked corruption of power. Because he really is the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Antiochus did evil works. What do mine look like? Shouldn't it have been obvious to them? He says, okay, you have a problem with me? Fine. Look at what is happening. Believe in what is happening. Then you'll know who I am. Then you'll know that the persons of the Trinity dwell in perichoresis. Okay, true, they never, they never heard all of that. <laughs> but they should have gathered enough to trust Him. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest Him, but He escaped from their hands. They couldn't get it. There is this tendency to look at the physical rather than the spiritual. You know, this life rather than the eternal, the flesh rather than the spirit, men rather than God. They saw the sun in human form and couldn't see past the human form. They were all in Solomon's colony. Most people that day thought it was actually built by Solomon. It wasn't. Solomon's temple was completely destroyed centuries before. There was this guy years ago when I was a college kid. He tried to convince me that the stairs in the church at Rome were magically transported from the temple in Jerusalem when it was being destroyed to the building in Rome. (laughs) Problem, you see, Jerusalem was destroyed in 71 AD and the edifice in Rome was built like, what, 500 AD? Uh, (laughs) Well, problem here. I think the stairs probably just hung in midair until they built the building all around them, right? Why would somebody want to believe such an incredibly foolish thing? On the Middle Ages, when the Crusades uh, to free Jerusalem began, men brought back splinters of the cross of Christ to sell to people. I like what one guy from that time said. There are so many splinters of the cross in houses in England that the cross must have been big enough to reach from Jerusalem to England. In other words, there's a sucker born every minute. Why did they buy them? Because magic was kind of more fun than spiritual reality. They were told, if you keep this piece of the cross in your house, you will be kept safe from harm. For people so deceived, the physical is more powerful than the spiritual. Not that we'd be that silly. It's not like people send millions of dollars to charlatans today who send a handkerchief, which they blessed with holy oil. And you will be blessed just by having this spiritual talisman in your house. Millions of dollars. (laughs) Incredible. 
there are people who repeat scriptures over and over. Just say it over and over and over. And then, then that'll bless you, right, automatically, just because you said it over and over, right? No, words have meaning. They're not magic. People often approach the Bible as if there are magical formulas in it, but this isn't abracadabra. It's about gaining knowledge of God so that you can more accurately follow Him. Magic is about gaining things in the physical from the spiritual. True spirituality is about focusing on the spiritual, on God, so that we can become like Him in the physical. In particular, like Jesus Christ, God manifest. Those Jews should have believed the works of Christ. This is the third time that he talks about signs or works in this short passage. Signs have a purpose. Uh, We have empty crosses everywhere. (laughs) Not because there is power in those crosses in and of themselves, but because Jesus Christ died on a cross and he rose again. And we want symbols to remind us of that glorious truth everywhere. Back then, they didn't believe and he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. This was the final offer of salvation to the Jews in Jesus' ministry. And in rejecting him, they lost their chance to hear Jesus. That part hurts, but there's a good part. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. There are always some who get it. <laughs> and when they said John did no sign, they were not saying that John wasn't much. You know, they were saying that they had believed John without the signs. So, I mean, like, wow. They should really believe in Jesus who demonstrated who he is. They believed John the Baptist. What, you, what was John's message? Repent and prepare for his coming. He is coming. <laughs> That's That's the totality of John's message, okay? Prepare to meet Jesus. They did. And they believed that Jesus was Emmanuel. God truly manifest in human form. I and the Father are one. Do we believe that Jesus is God in human form? Are we willing to say to people the most important thing you need to know in life is that Jesus rose from the dead? Are we willing to stand up and say God created all things? Are we excited that Jesus healed a man born blind by putting mud that he had made with spit in his eyes? Or is that kind of embarrassing? Do we believe the signs? How does one explain the existence of the church without the resurrection? Hundreds of thousands of Christians died in the first few hundred years. No one dies for what they know is a lie. Those people believed Jesus rose from the dead. Do we believe that much? Enough to die rather than deny this truth? The Jews tried to arrest Jesus and kill him. But some of those who rejected him at that feast later believed. The scriptures tell us many of the rulers of the Jews believed. When he rose from the dead, did they finally get the point of all those signs? 
Or was it watching thousands who were willing to die for Jesus Christ? Other rulers of the Jews like Nicodemus. Rich men like Joseph of Arimathea. Poor fishermen and beggars. Reformed prostitutes and tax collectors. What drew them? One thing is for sure. Some people are slow to believe. (laughs) It might take ten people pouring out their hearts to one that you love before they finally fall into the arms of Christ. I have a brother I'm still waiting for. (laughs) Some thoughts. The Jews wanted to hold on to the past. Are we holding on to the past? Even if it kills our future. Old businesses, old lifestyles, old friends, old habits. Or worst of all, those old comfortable sins. Will you change your life because of who Jesus is? And we leave our past behind. And we focus on the real and recognize symbols for what they are. The empty cross on the wall. Do we believe and focus on God rather than men? The spiritual rather than the physical? The eternal rather than the temporal? God rather than ourselves? And the most important question of all, this is the one we have to ask, are you one of those who believe? that Jesus was and is God in human form. God manifest. The Son of God who rose from the dead in power and will one day come back for all who believe in Him. I and the Father are one. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father, some things seem to us simpler until we start to look. It must have been very hard for people of that day to set aside the horrors that their grandparents could probably remember and focus on who Jesus is. Sometimes our lives here are so all-consuming that it's hard to stop and focus on who Jesus is. Sometimes when we talk to people, we get irritated with them because they just don't get it. But maybe they had an Antiochus Epiphanes in their life. Maybe they're still trying to get over the false people to see the real one. Help us to be patient. Help us to understand. But mostly, help us to focus on your son. And focus on how to live for him. We do want our lives to change because of who he is. Thank you, Father, for for giving that to us, for being faithful even if we are faithless. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.